Taylor. Uh, I'm one of the, the pastors, one of the elders here at Remedy Church. And it's, my, it's my joy and my privilege to get to, uh, to these that we've been doing in the Psalms, uh, our summer in the Psalms. So if you have a uh, Bible, go ahead and uh, turn there. That If you don't have one, there, there should be one in, in one of the chairs in, in front of you. Um, so Psalm 73, it's, it's, he's starting and he, uh, the Holy Spirit, because uh, he's starting a new book in Psalms. Psalms are divided into five books. Um, and Psalm 73 is uh, a Psalm of Asaph, which we'll see. Um, but uh, our Psalm today is it's a difficult Psalm uh, in the sense that uh, it may elicit difficulties and remind us of, of pain uh, or suffering in our life. And so um, I want to be uh, sensitive to that um, and uh, bear with me as, as we explore this, this psalm together. Uh, but to, to introduce the psalm today, I have a question for us. Um, have you ever had a crisis of faith? And what I define as a crisis of faith is this. It's where what your faith believes to be true, and then what your experience tells you is true about the world, they, they collide with each other. Where, uh, you know, what, what, what faith says is true, and what your experience shows you to be true, or what, what it makes you think is true, uh, they're so at odds with each other that your mind has trouble dealing with it. That um, you have discomfort, you have dissonance, you have anxiety, you have pain, and you don't know how to resolve it in your mind. When it, uh, it, it is when faith, which is what you can't see, collides with your experience, which is what you think you can see in the world around you, in such a way that you're forced to wrestle with God. And the hope is that you can come out on the other side of that wrestling with the blessing from the Lord. Uh, even if your hip is wrenched and you walk with a bit of a limp for the rest of your life. Our psalm today, which is Psalm 73, it describes a little bit of this experience for us. This text will teach us about how we can process these crises because they will come to us. If you are a person with your eyes open, uh, they will come. And, and I hope it will teach us something about who God is in the midst of these crises because he never changes and, and we need him. And so as we read this text, would you please stand uh, with me for the honoring of God's word. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind." Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths to get turned back to them and find no fault in them. 
And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. But you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray and have a seat. Lord, we are uh, so in need of your light to illumine our hearts today. We are so in need of your light to drive darkness from, this, from, from the land of our hearts and to drive sin from us, and to, to be to us our very present help in time of trouble, uh, to correct our minds where they need to be corrected, to comfort us where we need comfort, uh, to, to shine forth your Son uh, in us and through us. And so, Lord, do all that work today, because we, uh, we are desperate for you, and we are desperate for it. Amen. Um, so, the the... The psalm uh, kind of has a, it's like a, a good story, The psalm is. It has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. Um, it's also a good work of, of argumentation. Uh, the writer tells you what he's going to tell you, then he tells you what he wants to tell you, and then he tells you what he told you he told you. <laughs> um, and so... That's exactly what's going on here. And we, be, we see our beginning in verses 1 through 3. This is where uh, he, uh, the psalmist sort of expresses the primary doctrine or, or dogma uh, or um, thing he wants you to know and believe. It's in the very first verse. And this section parallels uh, the, the last section, 27 and 28. So that, think of that as the introduction and the, the conclusion, the beginning and the, and the end. And so the very first thing is that God is good to his people. That's our kind of first, uh, first point of, of the day. God is good to his people. We see that in verses 1 and 28. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. In verse 28, but as for me, it is good to be near to God. 
Uh, this is the type of, of good, a tove, right, that God saw uh, in the works of his hands in creation. Gen- uh, from Psalm 8, 6, that's where it talks about God working with his hands uh, in creation. Genesis 1, 3 says, And God said that there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. This is the type of good that God is. And it's also uh, the type of good, 6, where the psalmist writes, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is good, and God is good to his people. But not only is God good to, to people generally out, out there, to, to Israel, to the covenant community, uh, but I also want you to see that God is good to you personally. About God generally and how, we, how the psalmist, he, he makes this connection uh, between the truth about God generally and how he applies it to himself, right? So God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. These are general categories of people. Uh, but look how the psalmist ends it in verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. This transition from, from general truth about God's relationship to his people to specific truth about his relationship to you personally is a principle that is very important for us as, as people of faith. And the, the Heidelberg Catechism in, in question 21, I think, I think uh, summarizes this super well. What is true knowledge it, or what is true faith is, is the question and it, it answers this way. The Heidelberg Catechism is from the, the Reformation era. It's considered one of the, the three forms of unity in the Reformed Church. Um, and so what it says is, what is true faith? It's a summary of, of uh, stuff that, that's in the Bible. It says, true faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold is true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted, not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. And so a true faith, an active faith, a living faith, a saving faith, is an acknowledgement that God's testimony concerning himself is true, and that what he says applies to me personally. And so here, here are just a few examples. Not only did Jesus die to save sinners, but Jesus also died to save me, a sinner. Not only does Jesus cleanse the baptized from all of their unrighteousness, but God also has cleansed me by his spirit from all my unrighteousness. Not only does God bind people who come to the Lord's table, right, the community, Kit, kit, I think is what it is, to himself in the supper. But he also binds me uh, in a blessed union with him where I can say with confidence that I am flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. Not only is God good to Israel, but also as the New American Standard Bible translate verse 28, the nearness of God is my good. And so God's goodness is a central, overarching, controlling doctrine of this psalm. 
It is announced at the beginning. It is questioned and wrestled with in the middle. And it is reaffirmed at the end. And above all, I think the Spirit wants you to hear today and to acknowledge today and to internalize today that God is good and that God is good to you. And right after this announcement of God's goodness, God, um, right, the goodness of God, our psalm takes a pretty hard turn. Um, The psalmist says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Uh, So if God's goodness is a central doctrine, it's the main thing of the text, then the tension expressed in verses 2 and 3 is the theme of our psalm. It's, it's the, the battleground in which God's goodness is sort of uh, brought to us as a, as a treasure chest. And the, the, the theme here is that the wicked seem to prosper, which is our, our next point. We see that in verses 2 and 3, and then uh, mostly in 4 through 12. The wicked seem to prosper. Uh, prosper here, or prosperity, right, in... Um, Verse 3, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, this is the Hebrew, Hebrew word shalom, right? For peace, for wholeness, for wellness, for things as they ought to be. And so the, the prosperity of the wicked is leading our psalmist to nearly turn off the path of righteousness. Why should the prosperity of the wicked cause this sort of response in the heart of the psalmist? Why is it his reason to question God's goodness? And so I, uh, I think at a certain level, all of us know why just viscerally, right? We know it in our gut. We know that deep down, uh, or even when we imagine it, right? When we watch it in a movie or in a TV show or read it in a book, that uh, the wicked prospering feels disgusting, right? It, 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 it rises something within us. No one wants to see the wicked who, who hurt people, who damage people, who kill people, who murder. No one wants to see them grow rich or to have lots of influence or to enjoy life while they destroy the lives of innocent people. At, in your gut, you know that to be wrong. Out of the box, as they say, right? It seems topsy-turvy. It's upside down. It's unjust, that this is so. But I think if we get real close to the problem uh, and explore it further, we'll see that there is a deep theological reason for our visceral intuitions, right? Something is actually written on the fabric of our heart. And there's a theology behind the psalmist's crisis and lament. The wicked should not prosper. But before we explore that, which we'll, we'll do here in a second, I just want to call out two more descriptions for the wicked from verse 27. It says, For behold, those who are far from you shall, shall perish, so far from you, and then you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Those far from God and the unfaithful, i.e. Uh, those who break covenant with Yahweh by worshiping other gods. So the, the wicked are, is a very broad category of people that the psalmist has in view here who uh, reject God and choose not to love him, i.e. They're, they're far from God and they're unfaithful to God, uh, and it's everyone who does evil to their neighbors, which is what kind of wicked means. It means like criminal, someone who breaks law and, and oppresses people and, and harms them. 
And so, uh, right, you have these two, doesn't love God, doesn't love their neighbor. And so these categories should be read in light of the greatest commandment and the second that is like it, right, from Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Love God, which is the greatest commandment, and to love our neighbor, which is the second that is like it. So uh, next we're kind of, as we we follow this story of the psalm, we're leaving the introduction and we're getting into the story, right? The, The meat of the psalm where he explains to us, he brings us into his crisis. The psalmist is going to invite us into what he's seen and share. He's going to share with us for and all the church the inner workings of his heart, his, his own thoughts. He's, he's going to honestly recount to us the state of his heart. And he's going to put it on display for the church for all ages. And, and he does this so that we can learn about how to process these crises. And we're going to learn about who Yahweh is, the Lord of, of the covenant. And so what is the, the, the psalmist's theological problem with the prosperity of the wicked? Those who uh, neither love God nor their neighbor. What is the core, the heart of his crisis of faith? And how does the prosperity of the wicked call into question the goodness of God? So the, the, this is the, the next point here. The psalmist's crisis of faith looks like this. The wicked seem to be blessed by God. Um, while the righteous seem to be cursed by God. So we, we can see this as we just read through some of the descriptions until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. Um, in, the, in the NASB, the, so the New American Standard, I, I think it's probably a, a fair reading to say there is no pains in their death, which kind of means that they go up to the time of their death, happy as can be, and then they just die, right? They, there's, no, there's no pain in their death. Uh, They die in prosperity and at ease in their beds. Uh, This is the death of the righteous. Like, to die like that is considered a righteous death. If you look at Numbers 23.10, and everyone remembers Balaam, Balaam's donkey, right? So Balaam is giving this oracle, uh, 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 Amalek, I think, um, who's a king, is like, hey, you need to curse Israel. And he's like, I'll just say what God says. And so in, in it, he's, cursing them, uh, but he's actually blessing them because he can only say what God says, and God is for Israel, not against them. And in verse 10 of, of chapter 23 in Numbers, he says, who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? There are as many as the uh, sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. Uh, let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. So uh, he's referring to the death of, of Jacob, and uh, how did Jacob die? Well, Jacob died in exile in Egypt. He was beyond wealthy in uh, Genesis 42:27, uh, 47:27. We see that he's beyond wealthy. He, he's acquiring all this property in, in Egypt. He's surrounded by the multitude of his children. We see that in uh, 49, 1 and 33, which is a sign of blessing. Um, he's able to gr- grant prophetic blessing upon his children. We see that in Genesis 49, 1 through 28. And then it describes his death in Genesis 49:33 as after he's done blessing them, he puts his feet into his bed and dies. Right? So he's like sitting on his bed, he blesses his kids, and he's like, it's time for me to go. And then he just puts his feet in his bed and he's dead. Right? So a peaceful, uh, calm um, death. 
And so our psalmist is, is associating the death of righteous Jacob with the wicked. That's what he sees with his eyes. He, he sees these people who, who do evil continually, and they're dying the death of righteous Israel. On top of that, right, so not only do they, they die well, um, their physique, the physique of the wicked, is like that of Daniel and his compatriots in Daniel 1.15, right, where, where uh, Daniel uh, decides he doesn't want to um, defile himself with the king's food, right, at, at, at 1.15, at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh, than all the youths who ate the king's food. And if you can remember back, that was a sign that God was blessing Daniel and his friends. It was a sign that God was with Daniel. Fatness is a sign of blessing. They have ample food to eat, and their bodies are not racked with the hunger and deprivation of those that toil and eke out a living from the cursed ground. They are not in trouble, verse 5 continues, as others are they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Psalm 90.10 is a good summary of, of this idea that is normal in the, the Hebrew Bible, that life is full of toil and trouble. Um, this is Psalm of Moses in Psalm 90, accurate. Um, you know, all these hundreds and thousands of years later. Or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. But the wicked, right, they are not in trouble as, as others are. They, they've avoided what's common to all men. They are also not uh, so stricken, right, in verse 5. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Uh, this is a, the, the most common meaning of this is touch, right? All these things he touches. Um, but in this sense, it carries a meaning of touched by plague, uh, which we get we, we see also in Genesis twelve seventeen, but the Lord afflicted, so the Lord touched Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Sarai, sorry, Abraham's, Abram's wife. Sorry, I'm, I'm using their, their late, later names. Um, so in general, the psalmist sees that the wicked are free from the burdens and strains and stresses of life common to men. Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And, and this is basically the idea that they, they have standing and influence among people, right? They're important. People come to them and, and the wicked are respected and prosperous in the world around them. And uh, generally speaking, they have the life that all humans desire. That's what the psalmist sees. They have ease an increase is there. A good summary statement is, is verse 12. Behold, they are, uh, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. So they're getting blessed. The wicked are blessed. And I, I think what the psalmist is struggling with is that these are the exact blessings promised to covenant keeping on Mount Ebal. In, uh, in, in Deuteronomy. Oh man, I didn't write wh- which chapter in Deuteronomy. Um, it's Deuteronomy uh, 22 or 29. Um, so in, in Deuteronomy uh, 20, 20, no, it's not 22. 
It's 27. I was wrong. Seven looks like a two. That's what I saw in my head. Um, in, in 27 and, and 28, you have these blessings and curses. This is actually in 28, actually. So in, uh, starting in, in verse one, blessings are promised to Israel for obedience to the covenant. It says in 28 verse 1, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, if you faithfully obey the voice of your God, being careful to do all his commands that I have commanded you today, the Lord your God will be with you and set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field, and blessed shall you be, shall be the first of uh, the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And the Lord, so now jumping to verse 11, and the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity if you obey his, his command. And, and again, this, this is the old covenant, so there, there is a sense in which uh, uh, entrance into the, the, the land and maintenance in the land did have elements of law-keeping associated with it. Like, this is true. This is, this is not the way that the new covenant works. Thank God, right? Uh, thank God our, our, our uh, you know, living inside the, the new covenant, receiving the blessings of God is not dependent on our law-keeping, because Jesus kept the law on our behalf. But in the Old Testament, it was, this was the sign of the law still, still existed in, in this way. Um, and so the, the Lord had conditions on the, the, these blessings that would come to Israel. And, and what is going on is the psalmist sees the conditions of blessing are not being met by the wicked. But they're getting the blessings anyway. The fruit of your womb and the fruit of your livestock and the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give you rain on your land and in its seasons and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations up and not down. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right or to the left, to go after other gods, to serve them. In the eyes of the psalmist, the wicked are getting what should belong to the righteous. He sees the wicked's prosperity with his eyes, and he holds up the truth that he believes that God is good, and he notices it's not adding up. How can God be good if he blesses the wicked? But not just that, right? Not, not just, he sees, if he was getting blessed, maybe he wouldn't care as much, right? But how can God be good when he is suffering today? Right, verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. The troubles that the wicked deserve but somehow avoid, are actually his all day long. And they show up on his doorstep every morning. For all day long, I have been stricken, 
right? This is the same stricken from verse 5 that the wicked avoid. He is stricken all day long. And he is rebuked every morning. Not only are the wicked enjoying the blessings of Deuteronomy 28, it also seems like his experience of suffering is the curse and not the blessing that God promised. The psalmist is asking, how can God be good when the world seems to work this way? Now, important to the story and and what the psalmist is, is doing here is, is he also kind of in this section, he, he raises a charge against the wicked. He outlines the benefits he sees them receiving, which we just looked at, and he makes a list of charges against them. Listen to these charges. He says in, in verse 6, Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Right They're, they're so fat. Uh, they, they don't give liberally of their, their surplus, that their eyes are so fat that they bulge out of their face. Um, their hearts overflow with follies. So not only does, does their, um, their wickedness become visible in their bulging eyes, but their, their heart overflows with follies. You know, out, of the, out of the abundance of the heart, right, the, the eyes bulge. Um, as Jesus said, no, he didn't say that. He's, he said they speak, but... Um, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression, right? Um, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? That's verse 11. Uh, read these charges as a warning, as a warning to us. And also as a description of what wicked people do. They are prideful. They are violent. They are full of follies. They are scoffers. They're malicious. They're threateners. They're oppressors. They speak against heaven and boast here on earth. They doubt God's righteous rule. He is either unable to stop them, doesn't know about them, or doesn't even exist. And this list that the psalmist is going through is uncannily similar to Romans 1, verses 28 through 31, where Paul writes about the ungodly and unrighteous. He says, starting in verse 28 of Romans 1. And since they uh, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I I, I share this this list from Romans 1 because it's it's pretty sufficiently catches us all in the net. Even our psalmist is, is culpable, right? If you look at, back up at verse 3 in Psalm 73, for I was envious of the arrogant. That envy is one of the, the, the sins listed uh, by Paul in Romans 1. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
This is the thrust of Paul's argument as well, right? He's creating this list, and by the time he gets to Romans 3, verse 23, Paul has built a case to where he feels confident in inserting this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the the scope of this psalm, our writer seems to be working to the same spot. He he has the same goal. He's getting to the same place. Uh, We see that in verse 21. He says, when my soul was embarrassed, Bittered, embittered. And when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. So this word embittered, it, 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 is, it is actually a word that gets tied to wickedness, right? It, it becomes a word that's associated with the wicked in Psalm 71, 4. Um, it says, uh, rescue me. So the psalmist is, is speaking to God. Rescue me from the hand of the wicked, from the grass of the unjust and cruel man. The word cruel man here is the same word that gets trans- translated as embittered in our, in our psalm in, in verse 21. And so this embitteredness, this, this cruelness that is uh, rising up in the psalmist's soul, he's recognizing that it, it casts him into the camp of wicked as well. Our writer is basically saying that when he was in the midst of his questioning, when my feet had almost stumbled, when my steps had nearly slipped from verse 2, and when the meditation of his heart, if spoken, would have betrayed, it would have led astray the generation of your children. When, when that was going on in his heart, th- this is what I think the psalmist is, is saying to us. He's saying, I was wicked in my heart. I was wounded in my heart. I was senseless and I was stupid, not knowing the truth, And I was like an animal, perhaps even a bit like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. I was a beast before God. It is is critical, this is super important, um, that our inspired writer is providing his own soul and he's sharing it to us so so that we can learn from it. Um, And he's laying bare to us his own doubts and even his sins, right? He's, he's He's bringing them out. Because he's on the other side of his crisis. He's not walking through it currently. And he is assessing his own thoughts, not those of others. Right? He, he alone knows his heart and the spirit of God knows his heart. He is being frank and honest for the benefit of us. Right? He wants us to learn something. And, and I think we have four quick applications to, to kind of learn uh, it, uh, because of the psalmist's honesty towards us. The, the first is this. Um, we should avoid passing judgment on someone else going through a crisis. We should avoid passing judgment on someone going through a crisis. And, and the, it, to me, this just seems uh, like obvious wisdom because there's no way we can know what their thoughts before God are. There's no way we can know if they have any sin. In fact, going to a friend in crisis and telling them that they must be a sinner, don't be Job's friends. The, the, the second uh, piece of, of application is that you can be brutally honest about your crisis of faith. You can be brutally honest. You can, you can lay out what you see. You can lay out why you see it. You can, you can lay out what the struggle stirs up in you. Be honest with God in your prayers. God has, has even placed in his word 
an inspired version of this type of honesty. Not, so so what's, what's interesting is there's not one hint in the psalm that, uh, that the psalmist was wrong in any of his assessments, right? He, he never said like, oh man, I, I totally got it wrong. Um, he is just honest and lays it bare before God and, and for our benefit. And, and if the, the kind of other piece of, of honesty here is that uh, it can be helpful to share it with a friend in the Lord uh, as well. And so as you do that, uh, it, it is a good idea to tell them that you're in crisis and need their help. Because otherwise it can seem like uh, you may be going down a path that's not good and you're inviting them in to your struggle. You're inviting them in to be uh, with you. And this will give them the context to sit with you and, and listen to your lament rather than, than trying to correct it. The, the third thing, uh, if you are a friend who is brought into someone's crisis of faith, learn to listen and lament with them. This is, is crucial. Your friend is wounded and hurting. Uh, they need your gentleness. They need your patience. They need your love. They need your presence. And, and I, I would probably offer this as, as a rule don't offer advice. Right? Don't, don't try to uh, fix uh, your friend uh, because of how their struggle makes you feel. Resist the temptation and instead press into prayer with them and for them um, and call out to Christ on their behalf and be ready to be used however the Lord might use you. But be there for them. Don't try to fix them. And, and lastly, um, be honest with God, be honest with yourself, be honest with others about your attitude and your posture toward God. Um, there is no shame um, in sinning against God in this way. Right? We, have, we have an example of it in our scriptures to instruct our hearts. There's, there's no shame in it. It's, it's good to be honest and recognize it as sin, but there's no shame in it. So don't just share your complaint, but, but share your posture too with others. And if, if your fo- thoughts fall into sin, confess it, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I also uh, want to be, be clear that not everyone who's in a crisis is in sin. Uh, that, that is true. You can wrestle and struggle with the truth God has proclaimed in his word and your contrary experience of this world and not sin. You can learn obedience as you suffer, just like Jesus did. Right? You can learn obedience as you suffer, just like Jesus, what he suffered. So a crisis can come, you know, uh, a crisis can come and we cannot sin, but it can still be difficult. It can still be painful. It can still drive us to our knees. It can still even uh, cause us to shed blood as we pray, God, take this cup from me. Our psalmist is willing to acknowledge his sin in crisis, even as he is clear that he stayed away from abandoning the faith completely. We should recognize that honesty and and be willing to emulate it in our own life. And so now we we get into, so he's he's laid out the crisis. Um, How's it going to get resolved? So the crisis gets resolved in verses 16 through 20. 
But when I thought how to understand this, that the wicked prosper, and I seem to be living a cursed life, they're a blessed life, a cursed life, how can God be good? Boom. Um, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed wearisome to me. It seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them on slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So the, the solution to the crisis is that the psalmist is in the sanctuary of God. This is likely the temple or the tabernacle, depending on when this psalm was written. Um, there's, there's some ideas that this, the sons of Asaph, or yeah, Asaph, um, they, they just wrote down psalms that were already widely distributed, so they, they, they may not know um, who wrote it or when it was written. Um, but what knowledge uh, solves the crisis? What, what is the key that God gives them? Um, the, the crisis is resolved by the, the knowledge that the wicked will be destroyed suddenly and completely. If you notice, um, the text appears to be mum on how he came to this knowledge, right? It's just, he's in the sanctuary and he's got knowledge. Um, in my opinion, I think the text does tell us how and why. Um, both from the, uh, the way that it does that is the, the location, right? The sanctuary, what, what happens in the sanctuary of God. But then there's also clues in the, the, the specific terminology used in the text. Um, there's sacrifice terminology all over Psalm 73. Um, and so the author wants us to see that he gained knowledge through reflection on the deaths of animals set apart for sacrifice. And I, I'm going I'm to read from Leviticus, which I know is everybody's favorite book of the Bible, and you read in it all the time. Um, but in, in Leviticus 4, it's talking about sin offerings. So sin offerings. And Burnt offerings are in Leviticus 1, and there's terminology in Psalm 73 that appears prominently in both places, Leviticus 1 and and Leviticus 4. Uh, So it says, uh, 427, if any one of the common people, so like people like you and me, um, sins unintentionally in doing what one, any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. And she, he shall lay his hand, so we, get, we see hands in Psalm 73, uh, 13. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering. So that our psalmist may have been doing this when he, when he had this, uh, this, this knowledge. Hand on the head of the sin offering, and then he shall kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. So that they would take a knife, have the hand on the beast, and they would slit the beast's throat. Um, and so the blood would pour out into a basin. Uh, and, um, and the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger and put on the horns of the altar and shall pour, so in the basin, that's Psalm 73.3, right? Where it talks about his feet um, uh, stumbling, Right, that's, that's another idea for pour. Like, it's like my feet almost poured out. 
right, as a, as a, as a sacrifice. Um, pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat, so remember the bulging fat in the eyes of the, the wicked? That's the same fat used here, so that's Psalm 73, uh, verse 7. And all its fat he shall remove, and as the fat is, in, uh, is removed for the peace offering, the priest shall burn it on the altar for a blessing, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. So I, I think all three of these, or all, yeah, three of these, and then there's words for beast and uh, washing, which all appear in, in Leviticus 1 as well, uh, in, in Psalm 73. And so the, uh, I, I feel confident, but none of the other commentators even mentioned that this could be the case. So uh, I feel 100% confident, but I could be totally wrong. But uh, I, I, feel, I feel confident based on the textual evidence um, and his, his location. Um, but these sacrifices, they're a shadow for Israel and for us that points ultimately to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The blood of these animals could never cleanse Israel Right, uh, Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But instead they point to Jesus who can. That's Hebrews 10.10. And by that we will have, uh, we, sorry, excuse me, Hebrews 10.10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the, the Old Testament sacrifices were assigned to the people that said, repent of your sins and believe in the one to come and you will be saved. As the people would place their hands on the head of the beast, they would feel the death shudders of the animal and they, they would sense the suddenness of their destruction as the blood is drained from their bodies and they would think, this is the death I deserve for my sins. But praise be to God that he will make a way. And so in this moment of worship and repentance and faith in the coming Messiah, our psalmist saw that the wicked are like the beast under his hand, that he is like the beast under his hand, and that the judgment will be swift and death just unless they too repent and believe. And now we come to the close. Right, we come to the close by looking at how the psalmist describes his Yahweh, the Lord of his crisis. Picking up in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, and when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. Crisis resolved, right? The wicked will be destroyed suddenly and completely. Uh, I was like a beast toward you. So starting here, right, starting in verse 21, because I wanted us to remind us of the psalmist confessing of his sin in the midst of this crisis. His crisis did such a number on his heart. He envied the wicked and was close to leaving the faith because of his inability to reconcile the truth that God was good and his experience of the wicked prospering. We should remember that the writer is claiming he should have been counted in some respect among them, that, that he was one who should have been one of the, the, right, the goat. He, he deserved to be in that place as well. And that the penalty that he owes is death for his sins. 
We need to remember that if we are to feel the weight of the next word in, in our psalm, because Psalm or verse 23 says, nevertheless, despite the darkness in my soul, despite my doubting of God's goodness, despite the pain in my heart as I suffer in this sad world, nevertheless, when I harbored wickedness in my soul against God and, and thought him a liar, wounding me. When my fear was so deep I could hardly breathe. Nevertheless, if you are in a place like this today, hear the sure and faithful and true testimony of our brother who has gone before us in our crises of faith. And he has seen the glory of God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. God, you are good to your people. God, you are good to me. Jesus, we acknowledge that you are with us as shepherd leading us through our crisis even now. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. You are holding us by the hand, but we don't always feel it, or we never feel it. Lord, help us feel it. You are guiding us as our counselor. Your spirit that, that proceeds from you and from the Father. But Lord, we still feel lost. You are working all things together for our salvation. You are doing that. And it will culminate in you receiving us to your glory. But it doesn't always feel that way, God. Jesus, whom do we have but you? And we desire nothing on earth besides you. But Lord, there are so many things that we want instead of you. And so Lord, we beg that you would make that more and more true in us. That you would put to death our, our evil desires and the desires that just compete against you that are good and, and are fine, and, but we don't want them more than we want you. And so, Lord, be to us our God, and let us be to you, your people. Be near to us, and let us count it as our good. God, we love you so much. Help us, Lord. Son of David, have mercy on us.
Kimber.